Father, would you speak to us today in the midst of our peculiar confusions? Speak to us in the midst of the particular ways that we have gone about life this week. Speak to us through your word and give us a sense of clarity and of direction. Speak to us through your gospel and transform us by your grace. Would you be with us as we continue to worship, as we hear this passage read and now preached? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, most Portlanders, most of you I know, are familiar with Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger. They're very outstanding beers. And I've stood in line with a couple of you a few uh, months ago to try and sample Pliny the Younger, uh, but we were foiled. We got there too late. But you may be interested, interested to know that they're not only outstanding beers, but they're famous Romans. And Pliny the Younger is named after an imperial governor that really, really hated Christians. And he was in power under Emperor Trajan about the time that, maybe a few decades later, about the time that this letter, this epistle, was being written and then circulated around. And Pliny writes to Emperor Trajan to ask, what do I do with these Christians? What do I do with them when they're brought before me, not being charged by a, on a, of a particular crime, but just being charged of being Christians? And he says, I have never been present at an examination of Christians, so I do not know the nature or extent of the punishments usually dealt out to them, nor the grounds for starting an investigation and how far it should be carried. For the moment, this is the line I have taken with all persons brought before me on the charge of being Christians. I've asked them in person if they are Christians, and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second time and a third time with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. For whatever the nature of their admission, I am convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought to be punished. Now, this sort of thing is, was rather hard to imagine, even just a few years, a few decades ago. But unfortunately, it's not that difficult to imagine today because our news feeds are filled with reports of this sort of thing. Ronald Lauder, who is of the Estee Lauder fortune, wrote in the New York Times this week, and he says, the Middle East and parts of Central Africa are losing entire Christian communities that have lived in peace for centuries. The terrorist group Boko Haram has kidnapped and killed hundreds of Christians this year. Half a million Christian Arabs have been driven out of Syria during the three-plus three years of civil war there, and Christians have been persecuted and killed in countries from Lebanon down to the Sudan. Now, of course, it's not only Christians who are being persecuted and killed for their religious beliefs or their ethnicity. Many groups around the world are suffering despicable violence. But the point is, for us who call ourselves Christians, is that this sort of situation is the very thing that Peter's audience would have been very familiar with. And it's the, the situation that many Christians today live in. Now, in Peter's letter that we've been looking at for the last few months, it's been a sort of an extended meditation on what it means to live Christianly in a very dangerous, a very perilous world. And he opened up chapter one for us, and he said that you are to live, if you are named by the name of Christ, you are to live as slaves and foreigners, as aliens and strangers in this world. 
And these people that Peter is writing to have either witnessed the resurrection or have been become convinced of the resurrection by eyewitnesses. And they're having to reconcile this wonderful announcement that God cares about our world and is working to redeem it, that he's committed to remaking it. They have to reconcile that with the fact that they're undergoing persecution, hatred, violence, and suffering. And so Peter says, first of all, verse 12, dear friends, do not be surprised at suffering. It seems a rather strange thing to say to this group of Christians who were very familiar with suffering, who were very familiar with persecution. Why would they be surprised? And why would we be surprised? Not only are we not surprised by the continuing revelations of violence around our world, we've grown surprised by calm. We sort of expect something terrible in our news feeds almost daily. And in the last few weeks, the news, the bad news has just been unrelenting and so sad. But in addition to the global story, we have our own personal stories that are marked by hurts, marked by big disappointments, marked by failure. And yet at the same time, Peter's direction does seem strangely relevant. Because when suffering comes in our lives, don't we often wonder, why me? What have I done to deserve this? Why is karma out to get me? And if we're honest, we are surprised by suffering. We do feel cheated if we have to struggle. And let me give you maybe three reasons. They don't all apply to each one of us, but likely we'll find ourselves in one or all three. And the first one, the first reason that we are indeed surprised by suffering is that we live so much at the center of our own lives, of our own personal narrative. And what cultural narrative do we find ourselves part of? We live in a cultural narrative that says hard work and persistence will be rewarded with personal, individual success. And when we fail, when we struggle, when we're persecuted, when we suffer, this narrative is unwound a little bit. It gives lie to the idea that we are in control of our destiny and with it, then that we can guarantee success and comfort with a little hard work and a little elbow grease. We are surprised at times when we suffer. And secondly, because you and I live in relative comfort. You and I are insulated from many of the forms of discomfort that were commonplace even just a century ago. The advancements in medicine and technology, which have been extraordinarily good, have also led us to expect lives of great comfort, extended lives, superior health care, insurance for our car and home and savings account. We can now buy cars with crash avoidance systems and home alarm systems with exterior alarms or perimeter alarms. We feed on advertising that constantly tells us that security and comfort are available for purchase and that insurance against almost any contingency is just a click away. And so we're surprised by suffering because of these narratives that we live in, because of the narratives that we, in fact, buy into. And maybe for all of us, especially for Christians here this morning, thinking about how do we grow, how do we mature as a Christian, 
we really have a hard time believing, we don't want to believe, that trial, struggle, suffering, failure, that these are all vital pathways to spiritual maturity. That hope is a function of struggle. That growth is a function of struggle. These are the things that make us who we are as humans as well as Christians. You know this if you're a parent. You know instinctively, although we avoid it, that one of the ways that we can serve our kids is by allowing them to fail. Allowing them to try something that they may not be good at. Allowing them to experience loss and then telling them, yes, this hurts. Yes, this is painful, painful, but you're not alone. And I will sit with you in this. And if we understand that as parents, shouldn't we expect that a loving Heavenly Father that's committed to our good would know that the only way for us to truly grow up is not to insulate us from all and every pain and struggle, but to sit with us in it, to expose us to trial so that we can turn, so that we can learn to trust Him in that and then turn ourselves over fully to Him. And this is why Peter is able to say in verse 13, rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. This doesn't mean just to put a happy smile on your face when you're not doing so well. It doesn't mean to be fake. It means to understand the bigger picture of what suffering is meant for. And it certainly doesn't mean that anyone has the right to make light of your pain and of your tears. It's not that everything that you're going through at every moment is good but it's that God is good and that He can redeem it for your good. Peter says, first of all, don't be surprised by suffering. But we also need to see, we also need to not fail to see through suffering. J.R.R. Tolkien says in one of his letters, I desired dragons with a profound desire. Of course, I and my timid body did not wish to have them in the neighborhood, but the world that contained even the imagination of the dragon was much richer and more beautiful at whatever the cost of peril. Do you see what he's saying? What he's saying is that a world where there is something to conquer, something to overcome, something which is so obviously perilous helps us to see that we're made in the image of redeeming and rescuing God who's not content with the way things are. That we're made in the image of a God who is working to slay the dragons and reclaim the beauty of His creation and reclaim your humanity. And therefore, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of Christ are meant to unwind everything that is terrible and sad about our world. And when you suffer for that cause, rejoice. So that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. That is when all of these things finally come to pass in fullness. Suffering, you see, wakes us up to our truest longings. Suffering wakes us up to a world, our desires for a world put right. It wakes us up to that most vital conclusion that we'll never be truly happy in the world as it is. 
none of us have perfectly happy marriages. We lose intimacy. None of us has a perfectly fulfilling job. In all of our jobs, we have to take out the trash from time to time. None of us have lived lives of perfect contentment, devoid of heartache. And what we see through this suffering, what we wake up to, is that we're built for God, and that even the best marriages, the most fulfilling jobs, the most successful lives will never be enough. That in fact, these things, these gifts, without blemishes, without the pain, without being holistic, they would lie to us. They would allow us to push God to the margins. And they would make hope meaningless because hope is a function of, it's dependent upon struggle. God has put into Tolkien's heart, into your heart, into mine, a recognition that dragons are signs that the world is not the way it's supposed to be and that even our fears reveal to us that there are dragons in our world which are meant to be slayed. They wake us up to our true humanity, to our true calling. And it means that your everyday struggle for justice, for mercy, for good, is close to God's heart. Did you see at the very end, verse 19? So then those who are suffering according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. In between the resurrection where Jesus announces that he has conquered evil and is putting the world to rights, and the final return where that is made perfectly and and fully true, continue to do good. Continue to live according to what God has called you to live. And what that means, friends, is that when you give money, when you raise awareness for a dreaded disease, it's not simply so that you can feel better about yourselves. But if you really get the gospel, what you're doing there is you're envisioning a world without sickness. You're working for a world where bodies always work right. When you lobby for laws that protect the vulnerable and innocent, it's not an empty political gesture, but it's imagining a world where the strong no longer, no longer trample on the weak. When you as a parent do something as simple as reconciling a childish squabble or quarrel, it's not just to recall, return calm to your household. It's an image of the eternal peace that will reign in God's kingdom. You see, in all of these things, large and small, you're slaying dragons and pointing to a life as it could be, as it should be, and as it will be. We can't truly live if we're only trying to avoid the dragons. We can't fully experience what God has made us for. And that is to inhabit a world where dragons are finally done away with forever. Jesus experienced the world as it is. Painful, broken, full of sin, full of dragons. And He conquered it. Not as one wielding a sword, but one giving up His own life. Jesus allowed the dragons of our world to do their very worst to him so that you can ultimately be protected from them. Don't be surprised by suffering. Don't fail to see through suffering 
And don't forget, finally, that God, too, suffers. Verse 14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're insulted or reviled for the name of Christ, the Spirit of God rests upon you. Suffering somehow, like no other thing, brings you into His presence. It brings you into the blessing of the God who suffers. And it's only in His presence, only in relationship with Him, by which you can suffer in a way that doesn't leave you cynical, that doesn't leave you callous, that doesn't leave you finally exhausted and without hope. In some way, Peter is saying suffering because you are, are, are a Christian is in itself a blessing because it confirms your faith. It strengthens you in faith. It says that your faith is real, that you are in Christ and in Him you suffered. The Spirit of glory rests upon you. What was Jesus' glory? What does this refer to? A passage that we've read many times here in John 17, what's called the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying before His crucifixion. And He prays, my hour is near. That is the hour of His suffering and death. And He says, glorify Your Son that I may, I may glorify You. The glory in this situation, Jesus' glory was His life giving suffering and resurrection. The glory of God in this world is a God revealed in a life of suffering. Friends, He is the only God who knows what suffering really is because He has suffered Himself. That Jesus chooses to pour out His life to endure suffering so that you can have life and ultimately be rescued from this life of suffering. His Spirit of glory is upon you. It rests upon you when you suffer. And your suffering is a participant suffering in the way that God is transforming the world. You see, you're, you're not above your Savior if you're a Christian. But at the same time, he doesn't stand far off from your suffering, but he has taken it on himself. And so ultimately, this is the unique gift of Christianity. This is the unique testimony of the gospel, that there is a God who has been there, that whatever you're going through, no matter how horrific, there is a God who has been there. And instead of shielding you from it, in his inscrutable, mysterious will, he wants to sit with you in it. And that in no way makes light of your situation, in no way says that you shouldn't be sad, but it does dignify your pain. It does dignify your suffering because it says God too suffers and suffered. And when you suffer as a participant in His suffering, His glory rests upon you. There is a God who feels and shares your pain. And there is a God who suffered bodily for you, and then was raised to newness of life to announce that your suffering, no matter how terrible, is not in vain. And that there is a world coming where suffering will no longer exist. And it's because 
of what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we pray that whoever here this morning is suffering, whoever is in pain, whether it's bodily, whether it's emotionally, whether it's over the loss of a loved one, whether it's because of a child who is straying far from home, whether it's just because of the grief that is coming from seeing a world that seems to be in a tailspin. Lord, I pray that you would help us to receive your blessing, receive your nearness. Let it somehow transform the suffering of those present here and those who are suffering around the globe, that you would be present, that you would be near, and you would give us hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.